Welcome to Side Talks. This is a podcast. We talk about movies. I've been off the rails the last couple, so I'm going to try to reel it in today. I appreciate your restraint. Being very, very professional. And uh, I'm behaving like a creative director, or dare I say, an artistic director, should behave. <laughs> I am, I am, you know, I, I'm a curator, if you will. You're, you're starting to move um, uh, a little bit toward Phoebe Judge in criminal voice. I know, because I take things very seriously, and I want to present the facts, Corey. I, I don't care about fun. I don't care about... You know, trying to to stay on the lighter side of things or being a little provocative. Is anybody I just buying this? Want to talk about serious movies and serious things all the time? Well, okay. I mean, you know, I'm on board with that. And speaking of, we have a very serious series coming up uh-huh. at the Sidewalk Cinema, the okay. Halloween Triple Threat series. We have fine films such as Halloween from 1978, uh-huh. the John Carpenter by classic, John Carpenter, uh, a, a genius film. Yeah. We have The Craft uh-huh. from 1996, I do believe, if I'm getting the, uh, the, the year of our Lord in, uh, in, in the correct form. And then we have – I'm trying really hard here. I can and tell. Then, and then we have A Nightmare on Elm Street, which um, stars the one and only Robert England as uh, Freddy Krueger, uh-huh. who you might know. I do. From your dreams, bitch. All right, let's do a podcast. <laughs> I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> Side Talks. I'm Rachel Morgan. That's Corey Krapuska. For over one million years, Rachel and Corey have talked. And now they share with you one of the greatest accomplishments of all time. Their list of the top 200 films. What a great intro. It's on, it. it's one of the last times we're going to hear it. I know, but that's okay because we're going to switch gears and and I've got some ideas. Oh, I've I have got some ideas, ideas too. We need to talk about this. We're going to talk about this, but not on the podcast. We're not going to reveal our process. No, we've got to talk about our um our, our well top favorite films. I mean, we are in the top ten uh, today. We're going to do numbers eight through five. I mean, this is crazy. I can't believe that we're here already. It does seem like this has been going on for a long time, and yet. You know, here we are. Here we are. Well, I I will start actually. Okay. Okay. I'll start with my number eight, a film that you probably haven't heard of. Okay, uh, a big sleeper, one that nobody ever talks about, and uh, nobody is really overlooked. Nobody ever acknowledges this film. It is Orson Welles' Citizen Kane uh-huh. from 1941. I've heard of this. It was, uh, in fact, on my list a little lower, at number 19. We talked about it a little bit when when I brought it up, but. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good, right? I wish I could kick that door open right now and bring in a marching band. This is <laughs> this is while it's number eight on my list, it is the greatest film of all time. Yeah. Yes, the critics have gotten it right. It rules. It's it great. is an incredible, incredible film. Have you even seen a film if you haven't seen this film? This is also can we just say like this is this is brilliant. No, people do not understand how Greg Tolan did what he did. That depth of field, that cinematography is just miraculous when i show my students who could cannot tolerate a black and white film who can't stomach you know something of the from this era really they cannot and and i sympathize with them because you know it's 
people like things of their era. Yes. But when I show them the scene where they pop the table down and then move characters through the room uh-huh. and pop the table back up and you see the little hat shake so you know it, that's what's happened. Yep. They just go bonkers over this. It is an incredible film, everyone. And I, you don't need me to say that. You already know it. But damn, can we also just quickly highlight that Orson Welles is all of, what, 21 years old when he's making this thing? I mean, he's probably... He's in, super young. He's probably... I think he's 21 or 22. Um, I believe he's in pre-production, you know, in his early, early 20s. Yeah. So it is... And now, that said... Orson isn't going to do anything this great ever again. He's no. going to make some other great films, but he's never going to be. A, it, this is truly this sort of, of genius vomiting uh, that he spent his entire life probably in some way, shape or form preparing for. And I think part of the beauty of this film without giving away the ending rose, but <laughs> is it is a film that that is so at its heart human. Yeah. And resonates with – if you're a human being that isn't a complete psychopath, this thing will resonate with you. And if you are a psychopath, you're still going to like some moments in this thing. Well, you're going to at least be able to admire the uh, the art direction and the cinematography, as you mentioned. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean – And relate to Kane here and there. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I mean there are just moments too where I pull from this film and quote, I can't tell you the, how many times in the last three weeks for various reasons I've said – I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. (laughs) Anyway, I don't need to talk about Citizen Kane. There are movies and podcasts and books written about this incredible masterwork. It is – it deserves to be a higher of an eight, but it lands at eight. Yeah. So, yeah. What what else can you say about it? Really, really great Great movie. My number eight is my favorite film from my favorite filmmakers, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Them boys – Showing up one last time on my list. It's it's kind of staggering that it's so low in my top ten, but but nevertheless, uh, here it is. My favorite film from them is 2009's A Serious Man, um, starring Michael Stuhlbarg as a uh, Jewish professor of physics in uh, 1960s Minnesota whose life is all of a sudden beset by one mysterious tragedy after another, almost as if he is uh, the biblical figure of Job, and he has set down a quest to find meaning um, as his life collapses around him in pure, dark, comic Coen Brothers fashion. Um, this is, I think, the the most Coen Brothers movie, because it is a perfect distillation of their um their their kind of not exactly bleak but but pretty bleak worldview um and the movie the movie presents you know two scenarios both equally horrifying which is um there is no god and your punishment is random or there is a god and your punishment is deserved uh either way uh, there's no way if, that you will ever know the truth so just buckle up and enjoy the ride um and um boy i think this movie is hilarious despite the fact that it sounds so bleak i mean probably because of the fact that it's so bleak is is why i find it so hilarious um and just one of the the most um insightful movies about the human condition and the tragic comedy of existence ever made um just just a great time yeah and dare i ask last time we see the coen brothers on your list 
Yes, unfortunately. Oh, really? Yeah. I was actually expecting maybe a different answer, even though I don't know where I would go with that. Yeah, but, yeah. No, that's oh. my favorite film from them. Um, Lovely. But look, I mean, again, they're my favorite filmmakers. They they can do no wrong. I'm so, so hyped to see Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah, you've been talking about that for a minute. And, and it just premiered at the New York Film Festival. To we'll probably see it soon. Rapturous reception. Oh, should be interesting. The, 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 it's more of a teaser than a trailer, but it, it looks amazing. It looks amazing. It does look amazing. Well, my number seven, and yes, everybody can pause for a second to laugh that this number seven is falling in front of Citizen Kane. Uh-huh. Who would have thunk it? Um, it is from 1986. It is uh, pretty in pink. Howard Deutsch's Pretty in Pink. No, I mean, this, this, this makes John sense. Hughes. This makes sense. Written by John Hughes. It is... Uh, it too is a masterwork and in a very different way, but I love this film so much. And yeah, it just goes to illustrate how much my list is my list. This is part of the reason why it goes in front of uh, some, a wonderful masterwork like Citizen Kane is first of all, Citizen Kane gets plenty of top of the list, but in addition to that, it is one that I can watch over and over and over again and really enjoy. And part of what I enjoy about this film isn't, you know, the stuff that you see, you know, sort of, highlighted a time and time again but it is uh it is some of the moments with uh james spader yeah and the weird relationship between uh james spader's character blaine and uh, andrew uh, mccarthy's character and how just the the sort of undertones of that but in addition to that the fact that james spader is just skulking around hallways wearing loafers with no socks <laughs> acting like a 45 year old man who can't wait to get his hands on around wrapped around a glass of whiskey and you know smoking yeah uh it is just an incredible film in that sense and it's it, it i like some of the things about it that feel way stranger than they had to be for this thing to exist so, yeah um, and, and of course, uh, your guy, your boy, Harry Dean, Harry Dean Stanton. That's right. And we've talked about this film a lot. We, we actually did an entire podcast around this film when we were screening the it drive-in. at the drive-in. Yeah. And that was a really fun one to talk, you know, to, to talk through this thing. So I, I won't say much more because we've certainly spent some time on it, but those moments with, with, um, with Stanton, uh, are just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things that, as I mentioned on that podcast, it's, Something I didn't pay too much attention to as a as a kid, so this film has really evolved for me. Mm-hmm. But as I've gotten older, it it really that that particular character and and everything about him really resonates. Uh, it, you know, is is sort of an adult voice in the film, a strange adult voice in the film. Yeah, this is the Hughes movie I like. Yeah, it so, is. It is. Know. It is really enjoyable. Nice, efficient runtime, mm-hmm. and you've got Annie Potts there in tracks, which oh, yeah. I absolutely love too. And yeah, so yeah, that's it. it's good. That's my good. that's my number seven. Well, for my number seven, Brad, can we get a few bars of Uh-oh. the Amy Mann song "Wise Up" oh, dropped in I here? But of course. My life is falling apart, and I wonder if there are, I don't know, about nine or ten strangers out there somewhere, possibly within the same square mile in the city, who are going through the same thing and maybe um, feel like breaking into song suddenly as well. Um, My seventh uh, favorite film of all time is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. 
And look, I know Magnolia is very much the product of many influences. There's a little, uh, more than a little Robert Altman in here. Um, it kind of borrows the structure of something like Robert Altman's Shortcuts and borrows some cast members from Shortcuts even. But it is uniquely, bizarrely Anderson in tone, which is this very off-the-wall chaotic energy um, with the the series of coincidences throughout the film that bind these disparate characters together on one um, unforgettable day in Los Angeles that culminates, of course, in possibly a literal biblical plague being rained down upon the city. Um, there's just nothing like this movie. I rewatched a little bit of this over the weekend because it's on Netflix and just the sheer energy of this thing has never really been matched. Not even I would say in Anderson's own filmography, perhaps that's because this is like primo cocaine cinema to some degree, right? Uh, both behind the camera, perhaps, but in, and in front of yeah. the camera, as so many of the characters are struggling with substance abuse and addiction. Um, but it channels that sort of wild, off-the-wall energy akin to, like, the the meltdown sequence in Goodfellas for right. the entire three-hour right. runtime. Um, and I've just never seen anything else like it. Um, on top of that, you have what might be career highlight performances from many of the cast members in this ensemble, including Mr. Thomas Cruz. Thomas fucking Cruz. I mean, has he ever been better than he is in this movie? And that's why he does this film. Yeah. You know, I do think this comes along at a point in, in in Tom Cruise's career where he's got a little something to prove. Yeah. And, uh, he, I think he sees the irony in the character he's playing. Sure. And he goes for it. And it is a great moment for him. It's one of the moments that allowed me to really like him I as, wish, a, as an actor. I wish that he would try his hand at something like this again. I do too. I do too. But, you know, he, he proved it then. And he, he's, he's held my love since, since this performance. I, I'd also say it's probably my favorite. And this is, you know, maybe heresy. Probably my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, too, hmm. as a quiet, yeah. decent man. It's not as flashy as the Cruise performance. It's not as flashy as many of the other performances. Um, but he's just so open-hearted and empathetic and lovely in this scene, in this movie, especially his scenes with Jason Robards, the, the dying television producer, um, and Julianne Moore, um, the dying television producer's wife, who is, you know, popping pills and having a very very slow motion breakdown yeah throughout the course of this thing yeah. i just i love everything about it i always have it's you, it's, you have you've always loved it it's yeah. it's gateway it's gateway cinema to me i mean this is I something that. i saw when i was a teenager and it just blew my mind i was like i didn't know movies could do this and honestly i i have never i haven't seen much that matches the sheer ambition of this thing i think you're right about that and i will tell you this as you know this film is on my list too but it is it is in a different place rather lower uh but i saw this film as a young i i was either in film school or shortly had just had just gotten out of film school and i think i'd just gotten out of film school not too not too many years before and so i go to see this in the theater upon its release and I think it was myself and, and I was with one other person and the air conditioning was out of control. 
So it was back when theaters had money and they and it was just blasting this, you know, it was like probably 60 degrees in the room, yeah. which is a really strange way to watch this film. It's sure. already at times very cold. And I remember leaving the theater and thinking, I didn't like that. Mm. And An understandable response. Yeah. And I mean, I, f- I do think it was experiential in part because mm. it was it was a tough it was a, it's a long film and it was tough to get through. Uh, in, in the circumstances I watched it in, but it also did some things that I had never seen before. It had these moments where it has these moments where, you know, the characters break out into song mm-hmm. unexpectedly. It made me feel uncomfortable at times when I, when I, you know, wasn't used to sort of having that, that vibe from the film I thought it was supposed to be. And I, really it was a lot of my own expectation being challenged, but I very quickly took a turn with it. Yeah. Uh, and part of that taking the turn was, I think it probably is one of the first times that I watched a film. And I don't think it was the first, but it was one of my early recognitions of watching a film and not being able to get it out of my head. Yeah. And not in a way that like the shining doesn't get out of your head, even though it is, you know, its own masterwork and its right. own right. But this film doesn't get out of your head because of, of how many of the, these very specific, almost narrative boundaries that it's pushing. Yes. And genre boundaries that it's pushing. And it's doing things that are really, really innovative and interesting. And it's that shock of the new, right? It's that you you don't oftentimes, I think, we don't know what to do with work that is pushing boundaries. And that's a great excuse for some bad shit. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's also it also has some ring of truth to it. And I do I did very quickly reconsider this thing and thought, well, you're wrong, which is also something I had to learn at that time, just recently being out of film school is, is being able to acknowledge when you're wrong about something and change your mind and revisit and rethink. And, and this film was, was one of the, was one, was one of the pieces of art that, that caused me to do that. So I I have a special love for it, for that too. Nice. Um, For those reasons too. Anyway. Great freaking film. Yes. And what number are we on? <laughs> number, the next is number six. So my number six, actually, unless did you have anything else to say about this wonderful piece of art? I don't, but it rules and everybody should see it. It does rule. Um, okay, so my number six is a film that I'm not joking when I say probably most folks listening to the podcast have not ever seen. Uh-huh. If you can get your hands on it, and I'm sure it's out there somewhere, and if, if you really want to see it, I can put you in contact with the director who will probably be happy to give you a piece because this is uh, – or excuse me, a link or similar, maybe even mail you a Blu-ray because this is his this is actually this is a true labor of love mm-hmm. this is not a film that was made by any for any six uh, goals of success financially or otherwise it is a film called general orders number nine yeah i've never seen this either so i'm just gonna i'm not gonna even try to explain this film to you i'm mm-hmm. just gonna read you the synopsis that is on imdb and on letterbox that you can go read yourself but i'm gonna read it to you um, and I will just preface this by saying it is a documentary, but it is a very experimental documentary. And so here's the synopsis. One last trip down the rabbit hole before it gets paved over. A deep geography. What is above and what is below? What came before and what will come after? Agarian fantasies, satirical rites, and excavations. A story told with maps, dreams, and prayers. A lesson in three parts. A history of the state of Georgia or anywhere. And so I, I've never speak of never seen anything quite like it. It's a really incredibly strange and interesting film, and also very divisive. Mm-hmm. So, 
um, and very incredibly Southern. It has is from 2011. Mm-hmm. It has a very efficient 72 minute runtime. It is directed directed by Robert Persons, um, and it is gorgeous. And anyway, if you're interested. I will put you in contact. I do. I do need to see this. Yeah, I've heard I, so many good things about it over the years. I'm really curious to hear what you think. And I caught this film. At, I'll give a shout out. I caught this film at the Atlanta Film Festival, nice. which makes sense because it is a. As you could tell from the, the synopsis, it is a film um, that comes to us via Georgia. Mm-hmm. I saw it with Kyle McKinnon, who everybody knows from the podcast from Kyle's Corner, or you should know from Kyle's Corner, and also um, amazing, you know, f- programmer for Sidewalk for so many years. And both Kyle and I left that screening like, what the hell did we just watch? That was freaking amazing. It was one of the most exciting, what I would put in quotes as finds, as, as that was our like, second year of programming. Mm-hmm. And I really, it was one of my very first finds as a programmer and a really exciting one at that. So that is, um, that is my number six. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm straight up cheating with my number six. Um, apologies in advance. Actually, I don't care. Um, I'm going to step on all kinds of toes with this. I don't, you know, you're just going to have to deal with it. I tried to separate this film trilogy, but I'm just going to include it as one entry at number six on my favorite movies of all time list. Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings. Cheater. All 12 hours of it. Uh, Number six, my favorite fantasy films of all time. I can't believe this is this high on your list. I, you can't really. I can't. Have, you, have we ever I spoken? Know. Just wait I'm... till I get to number five in a second. You're going to lose your damn mind. I'm upset. Um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the fellowship of the ring, the two towers, the return of the King. You've seen them. You hopefully love them. I don't know if Rachel does. I don't think so. I've tried to watch them. I fall asleep. Uh, well, I, they are the ultimate comfort food cinema for me. Uh, I've watched all three of these endlessly, including when uh, they played at the Sidewalk Cinema earlier this year. You ever play them at the cinema again? I'm going to come see them again. You just point me in the direction. You've got my however many dollars, and you've got my 12 hours is what you've got. Um, You definitely get your money's worth when you go watch one of these beasts. it's, It's the most beautiful, immaculate fantasy filmmaking in the history of the medium. Everything about this is made with loving care, uh, down to the stitching on the costumes, down to, you know, the oh, crafting of, okay. of all of the, 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 the chain mail and the weapons and eat in the hands of all of these stuntmen. And the fact that this is largely made before the era of, you know, massive computer-generated backgrounds and and crowds of beasts and whatnot. The fact that it is, in large part, still mostly analog, not entirely, obviously. Yeah. There's plenty of CGI in this. But so much of it, I mean, compare it to the Hobbit movies. If you want to see a, a CGI, you know, nightmare, watch the Hobbit movies. You want to see, you know, artisans crafting real models um, and beautiful sets and beautiful costumes. Um, and Charlie is in the booth giving me the thumbs down uh, over and over again. Yes, and also, um, you know who agrees with Charlie? Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam. Okay, fine. I, I, mentioned, I, mentioned, I mentioned this to you, right? That yes. When I saw him speak, he spent 20 minutes of a 60-minute of a conversation just bitching about Peter Jackson and how much he hates the Lord of the Rings. Well, you're all entitled to your opinions. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, even though I 
just vehemently disagree uh, because That's everything okay. about these movies is immersive and brilliant filmmaking from the start of The Fellowship of the Ring to the finish of The Return of the King. Now, if you had to put a gun to my head and you said, you have to choose one. That could happen. Uh, I'm choosing The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the, the trilogy, which I think is um, a perfect start to this franchise. Um, but But all three of them are just amazing and seeing them on the big screen uh, earlier this year again just reconfirmed my intense passionate love for them um something that none of y'all haters can take away I that's right the lord per- of the rings is he done six. yet like i'm I just, done i'm done i'm, I'm done. not talking I'm done. about you i'm talking about peter jackson i just want to know is he done with this yet because i really really like heavenly creatures um, well, he he seems to have stepped away from narrative filmmaking and is making documentaries. You know, this um, Thanksgiving he has a three part documentary series on the Beatles coming out on on Disney you know Plus. That? I, I'm I'm going to say something very controversial here, as I like to do. Is it anti Beatles? I'm not a fan of the Beatles. God Almighty! Now I'm just making Brad angry too. I, I don't like the Lord of the Rings. I don't like the Beatles. My name is Rachel Morgan. Look at me, everybody. Hot takes. Yes, yeah, so hot takes is right. I speak my truth, yeah. and I'm not scared of you Beatles fans, which oh, means boy. I'm not scared of the entire. Yeah, you're not planet. scared of what? Ninety six percent of the population. Exactly. They're overrated. I've said it. I'm going on record. Everybody in the room, I'm sure, is angry at me. I can't even hear you, Brad. Cut your mic. I think. I know, right? <laughs> oh man. Um, anyway, just my point here is I still am interested in seeing this from him. Yeah. That would be interesting. There are interesting things about the Beatles. There are good songs. It's just that they are not <laughs> they are, Charlie going, is standing. It's just that they don't, you know, they're no Taylor Swift. You okay? heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Rachel went on a limb and said the Beatles recorded some good songs. Uh, well, thank you for uh, going out of your way to damn them with such faint praise. What's your number five? Oh, let me once again quote. Okay. Don't allow your artistic director to speak. <laughs> okay, my number five is a film from Todd Haynes from 2015. It is Carol. Oh, this is very high. You're not going to argue with this. I'm not going to argue with it, but it, this it's is a, a perfect fucking movie. It's a perfect fucking movie. I love Todd Haynes. I love this movie. I love our good friends Kate and Rooney in this movie. It's an incredible film. Um, it is it is it is incredibly yeah. wa- watchable. And I when I saw this and then giving another shout out, I saw the premiere at the Indie Memphis Film Festival. Nice. And uh I was I had I don't know what it was. Maybe the stars were aligned in a particular way. And and again, I don't need to talk about the content of this film too much. We've talked about it before. It will, you know, yeah, this it, is it, a pro Carol podcast. It's pro Carol podcast. We could do an entire podcast about Carol. But I'm just ex- going to talk just briefly about my experience of seeing this thing in the theater. And again, I don't know if the stars were aligned. I don't know what was going on that day with me or if it was just, you know, if it's just the film itself upon first viewing and, and, and the way it's supposed to be seen, a theatrical setting that was pristine. It I it was experiential for me. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I walked in the room and five minutes went by and I had just this I got hit over the head and. It, it was ama- it was just an amazing the first time seeing this I was just jaw dropped and and it was incredibly inc- incredibly immersive for me and I again I I don't know that I'll ever be able to put my finger on exactly what that is and I'm not suggesting that second third fourth tenth viewings aren't lovely and wonderful but the first time I saw this I was just flabbergasted 
It's amazing, amazing film. Well, nothing looks quite like it. Right. I mean, it has that wonderful grainy, like period appropriate cinematography from Ed Lockman. Um, and then there's something about the way it looks, the way Haynes moves his camera. Agreed. Um, and then that score from Carter Burwell, which I is think, just yeah, one of the I most think... beautiful, like weirdly appropriate scores ever. I think you're exactly you're exactly right. I think this is a perfect storm, right? Yeah. In the best way, and I, I do think that it almost felt as if this sort of tidal wave had come along and just carried me up in it. This sort of cinematic tidal wave, and I was just along for the ride for the you know hundred minutes or whatever this the film runtime is, and it's 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 a it's a little piece of magic on screen. Yes. So, um. It's it deserves to be you know number five or higher on any list, and and it is a is a masterwork. Well, you're going to hate my number five. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think everybody no. is. Talk about comfort cinema. This is a, this is um, my favorite dumb comedy. Oh, boy. It is a dumb comedy I can put on literally anytime and watch it and laugh just as much on my hundredth viewing as I have in any of the viewings before. Oh, I'm almost scared to say. Shit. Because everybody's going to be really mad at me. As mad as they are at me about the Beatles? No. Okay. Nobody well, could ever be that I've mad. i set the stage for you. Um, my number five favorite film of all time is from 2008. It is the film Step Brothers from director Adam McKay. Um, one of the most marvelously stupid movies ever made, starring Will Ferrell and John C. Riley as two 40-something-year-old stepbrothers still living at home with their parents who are forced to cohabitate when their parents get married to one another and um, they, I don't know, they just get up to all sorts of comic mischief and mayhem and act like complete children's and scream at children's children. And, that is and, fitting, actually. Yeah, it is fitting. Uh, and they scream at the top of their lungs for, you know, an hour and 45 minutes or whatever. And it is so, so fucking funny. I can't handle it. I just, it makes me laugh endlessly, so hard every time I see this. You'll recall that this was part of the 20 for 20 series at the I cinema. I do recall that. Um, because Man, I, we're I, full of hot takes today. I had to, I, I had to insist upon uh, seeing this movie on the big screen. It, unfortunately, you know, we never got to. 20 um, for 20, RIP. RIP. But one day... One day, one day, we're going to figure out a way to, to do 20 for 22. Sounds pretty good to me. Uh, because I, I got to see this thing on the big screen and with a crowd and with a crowd as uproariously dialed into this movie as I always am. I just love it. I love it so much. The jokes land. Richard Jenkins in this movie as the apoplectic father um, is just he's just endlessly hilarious to me. I mean, look, is this a dumb bro comedy? Maybe, but it's. A dumb bro comedy after my own heart. And um, I don't know. It's not the funniest movie ever made, but it's probably the movie that makes me laugh the hardest. So what am I going to do? Lie about it? No. I'm going to speak my truth. And my truth is Step Brothers is my fifth favorite movie of all time. Well, I can't believe that's where we're landing it as we enter the top four. Yeah, but that you, is where we're landing you, it. You ended in a really classy spot. And then I was just like, oh, no, stepbrothers, fart jokes, whatever. Man, we're really doing a big switcheroo here this week. Yeah. But, you know, hey, you love what you love. So next time, well, or at least maybe not next episode, but next time we do this segment. The top four. The top four. And the top all of my four. picks are classy as fuck. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I cannot say the same. I cannot say the same. Shocker. So anyway, um, until next time. What up? And now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders III to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. For today's Movie Minute, we're turning back the clock more than 100 years to revisit man's first recorded trip to the moon, courtesy of film pioneer George Milliers. Even if you've never seen Trip to the Moon, released in 1902, you most likely would recognize the scene where the space capsule lands in the moon's eye. That moment is one of the most iconic and frequently referenced images in the history of cinema. As an actor, producer, and director, Milliers was incredibly inventive. He is credited with introducing special effects into film, including double exposure, actors performing with themselves over split screens, and use of the dissolve and fade. He also pioneered the art of film editing and bringing elements of stage theater into film, such as using painted backdrops for sets. Milliers grew up in a wealthy Parisian family. His grandfather had been the official bootmaker of the Dutch court, a tradition of high-quality craftsmanship that his father and older brothers carried on. Milliers reluctantly joined the family business, but his true passion was creative pursuits, illustrations, and stage magic. When his father retired, Milliers sold his shares in his bootmaking business to his brothers and used the money to buy an old theater where he could showcase his illusions. One of his best known was the recalcitrant, decapitated man, in which a professor's head is cut off in the middle of a speech and continues talking until it is returned to his body. In 1895, when Milliers was 35, he attended a private demonstration of a cinemagraph, an early version of a motion picture camera. Within a year, his theater began showing films created by the few production companies in existence. To expand his offerings, Milliers decided to make his own films. A Trip to the Moon, released in 1902, was Milliers' 400th film and the best known of the 520 he would eventually make. Loosely inspired by the Jules Verne's novel From the Earth to the Moon, as well as H.G. Wells' The First Men in the Moon, the film stars Milliers as a medieval astronomer observing the moon through a telescope. The plot takes viewers on a strange, surreal journey filled with adventures, scientists, a futuristic space voyage, special effects, and strange aliens in a far-off place. This approach was influential on early science fiction and fantasy films. A segment near the end of the film was animated, making A Trip to the Moon one of the first animated films as well. The film took three months to make on one of the largest budgets of its time. Estimated to range from 10,000 to 30,000 francs, in today's money, that would be half a million to $1.5 million. Some scholars have interpreted the film as a critique of imperialism portraying the satirical conquest of the moon by colonizers using intentionally ridiculous science. This theory could be accurate as Milliers was known to strongly oppose the French nationalist movement of the 1890s. After finishing the film, Milliers intended to release it in America to recoup his production costs. However, Thomas Edison's film technicians had already secretly made copies, which were shown across the U.S. within weeks. Milliers never made any money from the film's American showings, and he went broke a few years later while Edison made a fortune. In 2002, a print of A Trip to the Moon was discovered in a barn in France. Not only was it the most complete cut of the film, but it was entirely hand-colored. It was restored and premiered at the Portion Silent Film Festival the following year. 
In 2010, a complete restoration of the film was launched 109 years after its creation. New digital technology allowed reassembly of the fragments of the 13,000 frames of the film and restored them one by one. By the end of 2021, a trip to the moon will actually be sent to the moon on one of the first commercial lunar flights. The film, stored on a micro SD card and protected by a sealed aluminum capsule, will be attached to the Peregrine mission and become a permanent fixture on the moon. Only 200 of Millier's vast library of 500 films still exist. During World War I, the French army confiscated hundreds of his original prints and melted them down to recover celluloid, which, in a strange coincidence with Millier's own life, was used to make heels for boots. Thank you for listening to the Side Talks podcast. We're your own personal cinematic Paula Dean and Anthony Bourdain. Mm. Anthony Bourdain came out and said Paula Dean was like the number one threat to humanity or something that was a bit dramatic but funny. But then Paula Dean said a bunch of racist stuff. She had already said a bunch of racist stuff, which is I think what sparked Anth- uh, uh, Bourdain's you know comment. And uh, but this is my favorite part of this little. You know, both of them clearly in the uh, in, in the world of, uh, of of food, yeah. Right, we'll just yeah. call it that to be generic. Uh, but this is my favorite part of it: is that uh, Paula Dean said maybe one of the most eye- eyebrow-raising statements you could say about Bourdain, and that was Anthony Bourdain, Bourdain needs to get a life. Oh boy! Yeah, which okay, Paula. Yeah, um, pretty uh, sure that he's. Nobody ever accused him of not having a life. This is, this is well, now. You know what I mean. I'm not I, talking I about in RIP terms. I'm talking about in, you know, living and enjoying terms. I know what you mean. This is kind of a terrible choice because you're, you know, if we're choosing between these two, you're either, you know, a dead person or a virulent racist. Exactly. But, you know, she does make good biscuits. I did live in Savannah. You are more of a Bourdain of the two of us. I think we want to, we need to point that out. No, we don't need to point that out. Everybody already knows that. Yeah, but you know, Paula Deen's cooking is good. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It's, you know, it's racist. (laughs) The food is? As if. Oh, yeah. It's just like a little sprinkle of racism on it, I'm sure. It's just a little biscuit um, with a Confederate flag stuck in a toothpick in it. But man, when you, turns out when you add sticks and sticks and sticks of butter to shit, it tastes good. Yeah. Go figure. Anyway, anyway, uh, I don't know if it's okay to say this on that note, but um, Revelator Coffee, thank you for sponsoring us. Thank you, You Revelator Coffee. You couldn't be further from a Paula Deen character. We love you, and we love your coffee. I'm going to get some probably tomorrow morning. Yeah, you should. You should. And thanks to Boutwell Studios, of course. Thanks, as always, to Boutwell and Brad, who, yeah, did cut your mic, but you did deserve it. Oh, whatever. Um, everybody, you know what? Guess what? The Beatles don't need, don't, don't need me. <laughs> the Beatles they, are they, doing they fine. Really, I think they're going to, I think they're going to be just fine without me. You're probably right. You're probably right. Uh, sidewalkfest.com and at sidewalk film on social media, like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's where you can find information about what's going on at the sidewalk cinema. Lots of stuff this October. Can't wait. Um, we've got 
I believe Dune coming up, even though I'm speaking out of turn. Halloween Kills? I believe we got Halloween Kills, even though mm. I'm speaking out of turn just yet. But um, maybe by the time you hear this, they'll be on the books. We have got three films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Craft, and Halloween 1978. Um, we have got, what else? You remember? There's lamb. Lamb. Titan. Yes. So I, ooh, October is going to be packed. packed. And we, we're screening the room. No, oh, that's right, with Greg uh, Greg Sestero in attendance. So that's another really fun one. Tickets are low on that one, right? Yep. I would, uh, well, soon to add a midnight screening, which by the time this airs, that should be out there. Sick. So go snack some um, tickets to the midnight screening. And thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Bye. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise. <laughs>